What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about anything, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Great, thank you very much. Good. Let's um, do keep 1 Corinthians chapter 14 open in front of you, and let's pray as we come to God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, thank you that you give us not only your word, but your Holy Spirit to help us understand it and to apply it. Father, would your spirit, the spirit of truth, please open our eyes to your truth this evening that we may praise the name of the Lord Jesus and live more like him as a result of what we hear. Amen. Well, we live in a, a culture that uh, loves spontaneity, don't we? Spontaneity uh, is exciting. Spontaneity is fresh. It, it's authentic. We love the spontaneous side of things. Whereas order and structure Those things are to be avoided. Uh, They're seen as boring, as restrictive, somehow not real. Uh, And that feeling can be true sometimes in the church, can't it? Uh, We might think that a a sermon given without notes is somehow more authentic, more heartfelt, more spiritual. Uh, And of course, we shouldn't over-plan our services. Uh, That would be restrictive, That would be predictable. It would be stifling if we did that. Spontaneity is good. Order is bad. That's how some people tend to think today. But when we do think about it, that's not always true, is it? When someone goes to great lengths to plan their proposal to their boyfriend or girlfriend, no one doubts the authenticity of that person's love. Or think about going to hospital for an operation. And just before the big op, the surgeon comes in and says, now, 
Now, usually we put a lot of thought and a lot of planning into these operations. We get the best, most qualified people uh, and with the best, most up-to-date equipment. But today's your lucky day. Today, we've decided to be spontaneous. Uh, we've randomly selected some of the patients out from the waiting room to come and have a go. Uh, and rather than use our, use our normal surgical equipment, um, we popped down to B&Q earlier to see what we could use instead. Sometimes order is a good thing. Sometimes it's actually how we show love and care towards other people. And Paul says the same is true when it comes to the church. If you've been with us, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. And in 11 to 4, chapter 11 to 14, we've been thinking a lot about what happens as we gather together as God's people, as church. Last week, in the first half of chapter 14, verses 1 to 25, Paul spoke specifically about the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And if you were here, you'll remember that the big difference between the two was that people could understand prophecy, whereas they can't understand tongues. And so Paul said, following the way of love meant eagerly desiring prophecy, because that was the most useful for building each other up. As we said last week, we saw last week. And in our passage this evening, Paul moves on to, to show us what following the way of love might look like when it comes to ordering our church meetings. And to help us see how these gifts, things like prophecy and tongues, should work in practice, he gives us three big principles for when we meet together as church. First, he says, when you meet together, loving the church means speaking. Loving the church means speaking. Verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Paul says, as he has done a number of times, that church is not a private thing. We thought about this this morning even, didn't we, in Romans 12. It's not a, a collection of individuals individually coming to spend individual time with God. No, it, verse 26, he says, when you come together. Church is a together thing. It's about us, not about me. Church is a bit like a bring and share lunch, isn't it? It'd be weird, wouldn't it, to come to a bring and share lunch, uh, but to bring your own private picnic, uh, to go all out at home and produce the most fancy picnic you could possibly imagine, and then come and smugly eat it in front of everyone else, saying things like, oh, I bet you wish you had some of this for your lunch rather than that cheese sandwich, didn't you? You see, the Corinthians, they had a private picnic view of church. They loved to come and show off what they had, but they used none of it for the good of other people. And Paul says, no, no, church is a together thing. And when you come together, verse 26, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. When you come together, Paul says, each person will participate. They will contribute in some way. We saw that clearly back in chapter 12, didn't we? 
Paul says the church is like a body, uh, with every person, every part, having something to offer. There is no useless, irrelevant, unneeded member of the church. We all contribute to the whole. The list there in verse 26 is clearly not an exhaustive list. There are some obvious things missing, prayer and preaching, for example. But the point is we come to church ready to contribute, not just consume. And so what happens in a church meeting isn't just down to one or two individuals. It's not just down to the paid staff. No, it's something that we all play a part in, every one of us. It's clear that in a large church like this one, that can't mean that everybody will be speaking from the front. But as we thought about last week, it does mean that we should all come to church expecting to speak in some way, to encourage others and speak God's truth to them. And so the question we should be asking as we drive or walk to church on a Sunday is not what can I get from church today, what do I need, but what can I give? What might others need that, that I can provide? End of verse 26, what can I do to help build up the church? And so right at the start, Paul says, church is it's about contributing, it's not about consuming. However, however, being eager to speak and contribute isn't the problem in Corinth, is it? Quite the opposite. It seems that the Corinthians, they were people that so loved the sound of their own voice that church meetings had become one big shouting match. Everyone wanting their chance to say something. Everyone wanting their chance to show what they've got. Which leads to the second way that Paul says we can love the church. He says, first, you can love the church by speaking. And secondly, you can love the church by stopping. Stopping. Or we should come to church ready, prepared to contribute. But Paul says we should also come prepared to hold back. Look at verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the, at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Remember, the Corinthians thought tongues was a sign of super spirituality. And so they were all very eager to show off what they had in their picnic, what what they could do, what they had. They wanted to show people they had that gift. But again, Paul says, no, no, church isn't about you. That's not how things work. He says you should limit the amount of people speaking in tongues to two or three. And if there's no one there to interpret those tongues, well, then they they shouldn't be there at all. Last week, the big point was that uh, people need to be able to understand what is going on in church in order to be built up, in order to grow. Uh, Clarity was the big thing. Clarity so that others are built up was Paul's priority for our church meetings. And so he says, if your speaking in tongues isn't clear, if if it's not understandable, well, then you need to be prepared not to speak. And the same is true for prophecy, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, 
if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Again, remember how enthusiastic Paul has been about prophecy. He said it's great for building up the church. You should eagerly desire it. Yet, it should be limited. Limited to just two or three speaking in a church meeting. We're going to come back to what Paul talks about weighing prophecy a little bit later on. But for now, just notice that he says not everyone will have a chance to prophesy in the meeting. And those that do should be prepared to stop what they're saying in order to allow others to speak. I recently heard someone describe a Corinthian church service a bit like what would happen if you gave a class of children free reign in show and tell. You can remember, think back to show and tell at school. Remember what it was like? You found some weirdly shaped pebble in your garden and you thought this was the most incredible discovery in all human history. Everybody at school the next day needed to see your pebble. But then you would turn up to school and walk into class and you'd have to wait for 25 other children to show their useless, boring object before it was time for you to stand up and shine. It was only the control of the class teacher that stopped you jumping on your desk and shouting, everyone, look at me, look at my wondrous pebble. It seems the Corinthians were like a class full of kids, each with their own pebble, each with their own special thing, but with no class teacher to control them, no class teacher to say who should speak and when. They all loved the limelight. They all loved to have their voices heard, and the result was chaos. People interrupting and speaking over each other, left, right, and center. And so Paul says in verse 32, if you have the gift of prophecy, you should exercise some self-control. You should be prepared to stop speaking so that others can have a chance to speak and so that everyone can be instructed and encouraged. In other words, in order to love the church, Paul says that sometimes it is better not to speak. Exercise self-control and be prepared not to speak in order to build others up. And then in verse 34, he says the same applies to women in the church. Look at verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, clearly, these are some hard verses to understand. And first, we need to see what Paul is not saying here. What he's not saying, he's not saying that women should be completely silent in church. We would have already failed at that this evening, wouldn't we? That can't be the case, because back in chapter 11, he said he expects women to pray and prophesy in the church meeting. And so he can't be saying this is complete silence, no speaking whatsoever. That, I think, leaves us with a couple of options. The first is that perhaps Paul is talking about being silent when it comes to weighing prophecy. Weighing prophecy, deciding whether it's right or not, could be a job for those with authority in the church. Perhaps the elders, 
And so that would not include women. That, that might be what Paul is talking about. Or he could be referring to something similar to the situation he spoke about back in chapter 11. Remember, it was a few weeks ago now, but back in chapter 11, Paul spoke to the wives in Corinth, and he said, the way they are dressing is dishonoring their husbands. It was undermining that biblical principle of headship in marriage. And so here in chapter 14, perhaps he's saying something similar, except this time it's not the way that they dress, but the way they are speaking. Perhaps in amongst all the chaos and confusion of the church meeting, there were married women who were causing further disruption by challenging what was being said from the front. Not only would that have been disruptive and unhelpful, but Paul says it's another instance in which wives are undermining the authority of their husbands by publicly challenging or or disagreeing with what they were saying. And so it would be better for them to wait till they got home to ask their questions. I don't think it's completely clear what is going on in these verses, what is going on in Corinth. But just as with tongues and prophecy, it seems that something these women were doing was clearly disrupting the church meeting and also undermining that principle of headship. And Paul says they should be prepared to hold back prepared not to speak, and instead save their questions for when they got home. I'm fully aware that that won't have answered every question there is on those few verses. And so let me encourage you, if you haven't already, to listen to the sermon on chapter 11 there. We spent a bit longer thinking about roles of of men and women in in marriage and in church. And we've got the Q&A later on as well, where you can ask more questions about that. But whatever we make of these verses and how they apply specifically, I hope you can see that when it comes to the church meeting, Paul wants us to have two big things in mind. Speaking and stopping. Contributing and holding back. Why? Why does he say those things? Well, the big principle is there in verse 33, isn't it? God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You see, the big thing here is that order in church meetings is not a bad thing. It doesn't quench the spirit. In fact, Paul says your meetings should have order so that people can understand what is going on and be built up when they come to church. But I also think this is more than just a desire for a well-planned service. Look again at what Paul says. God is not a God of disorder, but of order, no, but of peace. And so it's not just order and structure that Paul is after. He says it's about peace. And again, in the context of what we've seen the Corinthian church is like, I think we can take that to mean relational peace. In other words, Paul's desire is that church meetings are ordered, but for the purpose of peace. They're a place where believers come to love and serve each other. A place where believers come to use their gifts to build others up, to encourage others, to comfort and strengthen others in living for Christ. And sometimes that'll mean speaking. And sometimes 
it'll mean choosing not to speak. Either way, Paul wants a church full of people who are other-centered because that reflects God's character, the very thing the church is meant to be all about. The church should behave this way because it reflects God's character, the God of peace, but it also because it submits to God's word. And that's the last thing that we see. Loving the church means submitting. As Paul draws this whole section to a close, chapters 11 to 14, he raises this issue of authority. And that's because we've seen time and time again that when it comes to the Christian life, and in this case, church meetings, the ultimate authority for the Corinthians was themselves. Or more specifically, it was their own experiences. We've seen that at various points as we've gone through, haven't we? When the Christian life becomes self-centered rather than Christ-centered, that big issue that we've seen in Corinthians all the way through, when we're self-centered rather than Christ-centered, the ultimate authority, the thing that determines what I should or shouldn't do is myself. It's my experience. If it feels good and it seems to benefit me, well, then that's what I should do. And so the Corinthians, they have become their own authority, which leads Paul to end the section by saying, you're wrong again. Wrong again, Corinthians. It's scripture, not self, that is the ultimate authority. Look at verse 36. Or or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Paul says to the Corinthians, you're not free to do what you like when it comes to your church meetings. Spiritual gifting does not mean you can disregard the practice of other churches who have also received God's word. And more importantly, he says, you're not free to ignore my words as an apostle. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul's words carry Christ's authority. We have those words written down for us in the New Testament, and they carry that same authority. Which means the big point here at the end is that that something is only spiritual if it's scriptural. And that brings us back to the idea of weighing prophecy that we saw in verse 29. Remember, it's prophecy that Paul is most enthusiastic about taking place in the church. He tells us to eagerly desire it. But however useful, however desirable prophecy might be, Paul says it is still under the authority of the Bible. And so it's therefore the responsibility of the church to weigh or or test any sort of prophecy against what is clearly taught in Scripture. And if it doesn't match up, well, then we shouldn't listen to it as being from God. I think that is actually quite a countercultural thing for us to do. That's because in our culture, if I feel something, or if something is my experience... Well, then no one has the right to deny its authenticity or its genuineness. I also have the right, uh, some would say, 
to, to share that experience, for that experience to be heard by everyone else. But here Paul says, no. No, that's not the case. He says, just because you think or feel you have something to say, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should say it. Nor does it mean it's definitely from God. It is God's word that determines what we do in church. And it's God's word, excuse me, that is the standard of truth. Which means everything else must be weighed against it. Paul says it's scripture, not self, that is the ultimate authority in all that we do. And so God's word is the foundation. It's the guiding principle, the source of everything that we want to do here together at CEC. Whether that's on a Sunday, uh, in the youth and kids work, in life groups, Jacob's Well, the big day out, from how we run our services to how we talk over coffee, God's word should be at the heart of all that we are doing. And that is because it's through God's word that the church is built up. And it's through God's word that other people come to be part of the body. And so Paul ends in verse 39, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. He says, we have a good and gracious God who delights to give gifts to his people, to his church. And as God's people, we should thank him for those gifts. And then we should use them in a way that builds others up. Use them not for ourselves, not to to point to me, uh, but for the good of others. And to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as we do that as a church that we will grow as the body of Christ and in some way reflect the character of the God that we worship, the God of peace. Let's pray that we would be a church like that, shall we? Loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you do give us gifts. Father, thank you that you equip, you supply your people with all that they need for living for you. And we thank you that your spirit gives gifts to the church so that we can build each other up, so that we can encourage one another in living for Christ. Father, please help us to take our eyes off of ourselves, uh, to look to each other, to love each other, and ultimately as we do that, Father, to display Christ to the watching world. Would we be a church that so loves each other that people want to know the Lord Jesus, the one who we love and serve, for his name's sake. Amen.